Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. wonderful people. I have a great episode ahead with Kelly Marshall, but first I want to thank you. Thank you so much for listening and making this podcast part of your day. It really means so much to me. I started this show as a way to highlight artists who teach young people, but also to help me feel less alone in pursuing both careers with passion. The community that is growing here is doing just that. I love connecting with you via email and Instagram, as well as at the monthly Art Educators Lounge meetings that I host with Victoria J. Fry of Visionary Art Collective. If you have not yet joined us, sign up for the next meeting. They're always the last Saturday of the month at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. We alternate between free community meetings where we come together and share in community and workshops with incredible guest facilitators. We also alternate between talking about being an artist and talking about being a teacher and often places where those things kind of overlap. In March, we shared our studio spaces and ideas for studio organization and it was so cool to see lots of your spaces. Last week for our April meeting, Alicia Mernick offered a super helpful workshop on the identity mapping project that she does with students. Our May meeting is another community meeting where we are inviting artists to share your work through mini artist talks. We have a sign-up form you can submit if you would like to present, but we also welcome you to join us just as a viewer. You can come offer feedback or just observe and get to know some fellow artist educators. We would love to see you there. I'll drop the artist talk sign up form in the show notes, but we'll also be sharing the Eventbrite link to come to the meeting closer to the date. So be sure you're on our email list or following along on Instagram at Teaching Artist Podcast to make sure you get that info. We also have our current spring exhibition titled Rise, open at Play Plus Inspire Gallery. Ah, folks, I am so proud of this show. The work touches on so many topics from ecology to feminism to gentrification. If you haven't seen it yet, go check it out at playinspiregallery.com. And I wanted to let you know that next week I'll be taking a break and celebrating Mother's Day, so no new episode next week, but we will be back the following week. Okay, now on to our featured artist. In each episode, I'm sharing a bit about an artist and also sharing their work on the blog and on social media. Our featured artist this week is Alicia Quigley. Alicia is a 23-year-old Berlin-based artist from Ireland. Mainly working in large-scale format and dabbling in various mediums from acrylics and oils to spray paint and graphite, 
Alicia makes use of any material necessary to tell the story of each visual creation. This often leads to intricately layered textures and tones that bring a unique element to each and every piece. Alicia's art career began with her fascination with painting on recycled and used materials, such as old wooden cutoffs that she would collect from a local wood artist. The one-of-a-kind scrapes, scratches, tones, and dimensions in every piece would prompt an idea or subject matter, which she views as a continuation of the story that has already begun. From here, Alicia has taken part in various group exhibitions throughout North America, such as the Raw Natural Born Artists Showcase and the Pancakes and Booze Exhibition in Vancouver, as well as multiple commissions including her participation in the Squamish Mural Festival in BC, Canada. Growing up as a ballet dancer, Alicia is particularly interested in the human figure as well as the concept of the ballerina appearing in her works as somewhat disassembled and abstracted, contradicting the expectation related to the classical subject itself. Using these deeply personal concepts to explore wider social ideologies, Alicia is highly influenced by contemporary street art, as well as classical expressionism to create a bold and unique finished visual. From her statement, she says, Exploring themes of identity and transformation, I like to take strong, recognizable subjects and morph them into a form that is conflicting and contrary to expectation. The ideas of expectation versus reality and sincerity versus deception are ones that I believe are prevalent within our society and appear in multiple forms. Masked creatures, so recognizable yet somewhat not at all, symbolize the inner voice we hold within us and the identity we attempt to present to the world for the validation of those expecting. I often leave aspects of my work untold or allow for strong elements to lead to a place of nothingness and even dissatisfaction. This highlights the strength of imperfection and encourages the observer to continue the story. Using various mediums to create layers of tones and textures, the journey of each work remains raw and visible, retaining a sort of palimpsest. Every mark and stain is vital to the storytelling aspect of my art. And you can see more of her work on her website at aliciaquigley.com or on Instagram, she's at nakedquig. And we will be linking to that and also sharing more of her work on our own Instagram and on our blog at teachingartistpodcast.com. If you would like to submit your work to be featured, you can do that at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. I cannot wait to get to this interview with Kelly Marshall. She shared such helpful tips drawing on her experience as a special ed teacher. She also offered advice about starting her own business, her art school, Color Construct Create Studios. I loved hearing about how her work has evolved and the ideas behind her work. Her series of portraits of physician mothers during the pandemic is so moving and connects to a lot of her other work where she's talking about this invisible labor. What an incredible project to illuminate the collective purpose and sacrifices of these doctors. 
Kelly Marshall followed her BA in applied art and design with a career as a special education art teacher, helping students of diverse abilities in the classroom and in her children's art studio, Color Construct Create Studios, which she owned and directed for 10 years. Marshall is in her second year of the Visual Studies MFA program at the Pacific Northwest College of Art. Her exhibition and publication history includes the Jen Tuff Gallery in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the Visionary Projects in New York, Shockbox Project Gallery in Hermosa Beach, California, the Ashton Gallery in San Diego, California, the Artist Mother Podcast Juried Exhibition, Roaring Artist Gallery, Circle Arts Foundation, and the Art Center in Corvallis, Oregon. She lives with her family, runs a studio classroom, and paints from her studio at Art on 30th in San Diego's North Park. She is currently engaged in a collaboration with Physicians Moms Group to create a visual history of the role of women in medicine as it intersects with motherhood during the pandemic. All right, let's hear from Kelly. I am speaking with Kelly Marshall today, and I am excited to hear more about your sort of journey and what you're doing now as well. But I like to start with that background. So could you kind of talk us through how you got into both art and teaching? Sure. Thank you so much for having me today. So I've always been an artist. And I think the the best anecdote to describe this is the story that my family loves to tell where I was probably 14, 15 months old, was at my grandmother's house in the crib in my great grandmother's bedroom. And apparently I had managed to reach through the bars of the crib, grab great grandmother's purse and take out her three Chanel lipsticks, bright red, of course, and (laughs) painted my whole self, (laughs) the fingers, the toes, the whole thing. (laughs) the crib, every check in her checkbook, (laughs) the credit cards, like, yeah. And um, they, apparently they came in and were horrified, then thought it was hilarious. And it's kind of been downhill ever since. But uh, lots of stories like that. And they, my nickname when I was little was busy, because I was always getting into stuff and making stuff. But I really didn't get the spark for fine art didn't happen until high school when I had my first formal art class. And that's where I it just immediately I just knew and I took as many of classes as my high school had to offer. And then went to I really wanted to go to a formal art school for college. But that wasn't in the cards for our family. I lived at home and had to help support my family in college. So I went to our local state school, San Diego State but had a really great experience there. And it was um, Mm -hmm. a very practical program, not so theoretical, just a lot of really intense art making. But after graduating in 2000, I had to, you know, really like figure out what I was going to do with this art degree that my dad was like, in defense of my dad, he meant well, he, but he was not the biggest fan of the choice to be an art major in college, mostly because, you know, what, do you, what are the job prospects? What are you going to do with this degree? And so after graduating, I, you know, had to figure out what to do. And after being an undergrad TA, teaching was the next logical step. So went, got the credentials, 
taught art for like five minutes, lost funding, and then went and got my uh, multiple subject and special ed credentials. So ended up teaching. I have been teaching special ed Uh. off and on for the last 20 years. So, and then about 10 years ago, went and opened a children's, a full inclusion children's art school called Color Construct Create Studios with one of my closest friends who's an occupational therapist. We've been teaching a ther. it's not art therapy, but it is a therapeutic art program for children of all abilities. And that's been a really incredible experience for me. And that is what led me back to my own art practice. Oh, I love that. Which really, I didn't fully commit to the art practice until sometime around 2016. And Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. My friends had said, oh, just wait, wait till you hit your 40s. You're going to feel free. <laughs> and there, yeah, it was right around then when I'm like, you know what, this has been missing in my life for a long time. So been been like rock and roll ever since. So that's kind of how I ended up here. Uh, I love all of that. We will get into more of your own art, but I would love to hear more about your teaching and just thinking, going from being an artist, being an art teacher very briefly, and then jumping into special ed and general ed, did you continue to kind of weave art into your classes in any way? It's interesting because I don't, I I don't think I was doing a lot of it consciously, Mm. but teaching special ed is an act of like constant creativity because you have to try and reach learners who are, you know, not learning in the traditional ways. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of, we would do art, I would infuse it here and there. But that particular part was really just more about creative engagement Mm -hmm. with my students and coming up with inventive ways to, you know, to help them access math, language arts, reading, etc. So it it was absolutely creative, not as much art as I wish, but you know, the re- reflecting back on it, you know, I, I was doing, I was using the same part of my brain, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And then with your own, with the studio, um, Color Construct Create, that's definitely m- sort of marrying the two. I'm wondering if you have tips for art teachers especially around, um, you know, working with learners that learn in all different ways or students that have different abilities. For sure. Yes. This, it's something that I feel very passionate about and it can be really intimidating, especially if you, I mean, I find that kids who kids that have like behavior concerns or real impairments that hinder like their fine motor or something, it, it, it's hard. It's hard to know what to do. It's hard to know how to give them the access that they need and deserve. But what we found the most helpful is essentially to just work backwards. And when, when I say work backwards, you know, what, what we would do is we'd figure out exactly what we wanted the kids to learn you know, what skill we wanted them to acquire Mm -hmm. and come up with 
a project or an outcome and then scale it, but think exactly, okay, if they have fine motor needs and I want them to, you know, learn this particular drawing technique, do I need to use modified tools? Like, you know, their special scissors, their pencil grips. Do I need to create a tracer in order for them to be independent? And the goal is to have the kids be as independent as possible. But you just find ways Mm -hmm. to get to that outcome just from thinking through all of the steps and where they might have a need. And the the other big limitation, I think, that teachers don't necessarily anticipate until they're in the moment and finding things. I mean, we've all had those moments where you're, you think you've got this great idea and then it sort of like falls apart. It's really limiting the downtime, the time in between and the time that, you know, the teacher spends talking at the students. If you can really pare that down as much as possible through structure and support the fluidity of the lesson and the amount of interest and access almost always rises. So that's, that's kind of where that's how we developed our program. Mm -hmm. And then that makes so much sense. I feel like that's sort of that thinking is what led me towards tab. And I'm still kind of on like a journey of figuring out this teaching for artistic behavior and moving towards more student choice. But yeah, trying to pare down the time I spent talking was <laughs> a huge motivator. And, you know, like, how can I structure my classroom? And how can I structure my lessons so that the kids can, you know, get all of the information and practice these skills without me spending even 10 minutes at the beginning of every class felt like too much. Like, how do I pare it down even more? Are you familiar with um, Cassie Stevens? Yeah, I actually interviewed her a while ago. I yeah. she, I adore her mm-hmm. so much. And um, I went to a conference where she was a guest teacher. And the way that she structures her classroom was very inspiring for us in terms of like, I, just the way she uses call and response. We once, you know, when we heard her, I mean, we were very, it was very early in our program and we heard that and it just was so transformative, you know, the simple thing. Okay. Okay. Boys and girls, what's the first thing we do? We write our, and then the kids say, I mean, they just, they get in those habits and then it just helps make everything Mm -hmm. so seamless and fun. And then they're engaged. It's yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I would also love to hear more about how you structure the programs at Color Construct Create. Basically, we we have two levels mm-hmm. of classes. We have a general art, and it's for any age. Most of our students are elementary, but we do have some older kids who find that that structure mm-hmm. it works better for them. It's about a 45-minute class. We always use you know, an art principle and then mm-hmm. a theme. And we try and have our themes relate to some form of text. So either literature or nonfiction, but because many of our students are on the autism spectrum, you know, having that level of engagement with them, we have to have some sort of foundation to engage them and bring them into the concept. And we found that text is 
just essential to like building that interest. Mm -hmm. And then we go from there. So that's, that's the first, the first level of course that we offer. And then the second class is something called, well, we actually have three, but we, one is just an open studio where we'll put the materials out and let the kids come and play. But the other instructional course is one called art club. And our students are older elementary through middle and high school. Mm -hmm. And they're the kids help determine, you know, in the beginning of the semester, we come up with a menu of options and ideas that the kids really want to explore. And we build our curriculum off of the, the things that the kids are interested in. And we will do short lessons, longer, you know, two, three week long projects but that class is is really fun and interesting because the students really are driving mm-hmm. the content and the beauty of being a private you know a private program is you know while we have ideas on what we would like the kids to take mm-hmm. away from the program we're not limited by a set of standards or i mean we as a as a public school teacher you know i i believe in that and i want them to uh, i want to make sure that i'm using kind of a rubric or guideline for myself but we have a lot of freedom and it's really great and we explore the kids they want to mm-hmm. do everything. They want to, they want to sculpt, they want to collage, they want to draw, they want to paint. So we try and, oh, and we, we sew, we do needle felting. It, ah. we, we explore as many possible themes and materials as, you know, as the kids desire. And it's just, it's a really magical little program. Amazing. Yeah. And have you have you been able to continue in person or are you, have you shifted to remote learning? So we, when, when it's really tricky and it's funny, I actually felt like a little bit, I had a crisis of conscience when I was looking through, you know, what I would, would what we would talk about today, because we've had to really pare down mm-hmm. what we do. We were, we went fully virtual in March mm-hmm. and that was okay. I mean, we, we pivoted, it worked for a while. And then in the fall, we'd had a real drop off in kids um, participating. And most of our kids that were fully included were really struggling with the screen time because our schools are still, our school district is still fully Mm -hmm. virtual and, you know, having an extra hour after, you know, seven, eight hours on a screen all day, the kids were really struggling. So we have, our classes have been on hold. We still do contract work with, uh, we go into some of the special day classes Mm -hmm. in our local school district and do their virtual Mm -hmm. art lessons. But our, our classes are currently, they're currently on hold until we can reopen in person. That was our, the general consensus from our families. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And thinking just of sort of the business side of running a studio like this. Um, I'd be curious to hear kind of how you got started. And then, you know, you just talked about contracts with schools. How does that come about um, for especially for teachers listening that might be interested in starting something like this? Yes, absolutely. It really wasn't as big of a challenge as we thought it would be. Mm -hmm. 
the first thing you need to do is find, like develop an idea of what, you know, we developed our idea of what we wanted to do. And Mm -hmm. we both knew, my business partner and I, we both knew that we wanted to offer art for kids of all abilities. Mm -hmm. And then develop just an idea of what our, our courses would look like and then find a place to do the classes. Mm-hmm. Now, the tricky thing with us is, you know, as you know, in California, rents are so high. Ugh. Having a physical space was just never like a retail space that was never in the cards for us because yeah. we're both moms. <laughs> we both, you know, have other forms of employment as well as our art school. Mm -hmm. And it just, so that we ended up working out of my garage Mm -hmm. that posed an interesting limitation because then you're concerned about your own personal liability and what, you know, if you have people coming into your home for a business, then that was interesting. But we ended up, you know, talking to our insurance, getting, as much protection as we could. And you have options, you know, you can form an LLC, which adds protection. We didn't. And the other, we debated a lot about forming a nonprofit, Mm -hmm. but that requires so much work on the back end. You know, you have to have monthly meetings, you have to have board members. And that being a nonprofit gives you access to discounted rates on school campuses or other, you know, community facilities, which is lovely. But for us, we decided that our time was more valuable than paying the, uh, you know, the Mm -hmm. extra rent to lease space from schools. And we do, we, we offer our classes out of my, we're still in my garage. Um, Mm -hmm. But then for summer camps and things that we do like that, we are, uh, we rent from the schools because of, Mm -hmm. you know, if they don't have kids in session, then it's, uh, it's really great to have that extra space and sinks and being able to use those facilities is nice, but it's, you know, and then the other interesting part of it is marketing. We found that word of mouth worked really, really well Mm. and hosted a couple of free workshops, got some kids in the door and really didn't have a problem filling our classes after that. So we just a limited advertising on social media through, you know, moms groups and, you know, friends passing the word around and we're, we're pretty solid. And then I have relationships Mm -hmm. with special education teachers in our local school district. And so they would, you know, whenever they had a kiddo who was really interested in art, um, they'd send them our way, which was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I, a few years ago, I was looking into doing some kind of summer camp and the space was such a big issue. And you're, you're right here in California. It's so expensive. And yeah, thinking about that liability and like, where do you do this? It can be a real, a real limitation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then it's, it's tricky when it's in your home, but we've made it work. And I'm, I mean, I'm really lucky that I have an incredibly supportive family who uh, they, you know, my children participate in the classes and then they also, um, they don't mind if they have people coming and going. So, and we have lovely neighbors who, a lot of whom attend the classes as well. So um, it's worked out. Yeah. I love that. That's so great. 
through your classes, one thing I've been talking about a lot is just addressing sort of current issues, bringing in contemporary art, and kind of using our platform as educators to try in some way to dismantle systemic racism. Feels like a really big task. (laughs) But I'm curious, like just your thoughts about all of that and how you're kind of how or whether you're bringing in contemporary art and sort of what, yeah, what you would think about that. It's, you know, we, we don't have those really hard discussions with our younger kids as much. I mean, there, it's mm-hmm. always there, but our, in our art club class, oh my goodness, we have some really just meaty, juicy mm-hmm. discussions and the kids it's, you know, it gives me a lot of hope, my mm. students, because they aren't afraid to challenge some of these things that need to be challenged and to have these discussions. And that's another really beautiful part of having an independently owned and operated program. You know, mm-hmm. something I was always a little concerned, especially in special ed and working in a really litigious school district, mm. and you're always kind of second guessing what you say and mm. who's going to interpret this one way or the other. But in our art program, the kids drove the conversation. They're, they're not afraid to tackle hard issues and they're not sometimes, sometimes to a fault. They're not afraid to call each other out if someone mm-hmm. says something that's insensitive or unkind, but we absolutely try and infuse contemporary art and social issues into our work. One of our favorite units that we've done is um, our Faith Ringgold unit. Mm -hmm. There, I mean, it's great because there are, you know, she has her, her children's texts and then Mm -hmm. you can just, as she's, she's so multidisciplinary that it just lends itself to, just really amazing project ideas and directions Mm -hmm. that the kids can go. You know, we quilted with paper, we quilted with actual sewing, the kids, I mean, so much fun and a really easy jumping off point to talk about some harder things with Mm -hmm. the kids. Yeah. And especially thinking how you, you know, you talked about how you bring in text. So having an artist that has text books that you can read to the kids. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And then do you have maybe any um, sort of favorite texts or favorite books that you would want to share? So (laughs) with, with our, with our younger kids, we love, there are some really great art books for kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I I love like Pig Casso meets Moutisse. Mm-hmm. The kids <laughs> love those. They're, I mean, they're just, it's, it's really great. It just gives them access. And then um, I, I am kind of obsessed with children's books. <laughs> and even the older kids love them too. Like we love Arlo Needs Glasses. I think mm-hmm. I'm looking at my bookshelf right across my studio right yeah. now. And it's um, <laughs> blue, like a blue dog. I think it's blue dog's friend or something mm-hmm. like that. There's so many. And then for teachers, the art lab books have oh, yeah. great resources. 
um, the art lab, clay lab, there's those, that whole line just Mm -hmm. has really fun project ideas and jumping off points. Yeah. And several of those are by Cassie Stevens, right? Yes. 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 I love her. She's amazing. She really is. Yeah. So many great ideas. Yeah. And I love also just hearing how the discussions with students are really like a chance for them to to take the lead and kind of dig into topics that they maybe don't get a chance to talk about elsewhere. Right. I mean, we we are so fortunate that the families and kids that come to our classes are, they're just really open and supportive. Mm -hmm. And the kids are thinking and engaging on in, you know, on these issues Mm -hmm. at a pretty high level. And it's across the board. And it's, I don't know, we, again, we feel we feel really, really fortunate. And Mm -hmm. it gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, absolutely. And then with your with your own kids, I'm sure you have those discussions, but I I loved hearing how they like join the classes and kind of interact in the school. Maybe if you could talk a little bit more about just balancing parenting with teaching, with running <laughs> running this <laughs> program, all of it and art making. <laughs> Oh goodness. I mean, we're we're all in it right now, aren't we? Oh. With, you know, managing <laughs> virtual learning and mm-hmm. our own lives. It's it's a lot, but um and I'm actually homeschooling my 10-year-old. He has some pretty significant uh, medical issues, so he's mm-hmm. going to be homeschooled indefinitely until we have a safe option for him. So that's yeah. been a whole new adventure, but the with the program. So I have a 14 year old and a 10 year old Mm -hmm. and my 14 year old has some had when he was younger, some pretty significant fine motor delays. Mm. And so partnering with an occupational therapist for this class, um, these classes that we offer were, it was really therapeutic for him. And it's funny because he was always like, I don't really like art. I don't want to do that. (laughs) But then he'd come and have a great time, but it was work and it was skill building for him. Mm -hmm. And then my younger son, who's 10, he just loved it. I mean, he would go, he would go to all the classes and it would sometimes be at a point where we're like, okay, we're full today. (laughs) You can go to the class tomorrow. But it was really beautiful for him because he is a natural caregiver helper. Mm. He, I wouldn't be surprised if he became a teacher when he grew up, grows mm. up, but he would just find someone who maybe needed, needed help and support and sit by them and be their buddy. And it just, it, it was, it, it's really special to be able to include them in this process. And they, they, it's been our whole family is involved in this and you know from my husband helping you know prep materials on the weekends and things to uh, the kids attending class but it doesn't really feel like work Mm -hmm. I mean I put a lot of my heart and soul into it as does uh, Kristen my business partner but it's really fun so it it doesn't feel like like a drain on our family or, Mm -hmm. and because the kids are involved, you know, they, we all, we all kind of win from it. So 
there's never an, there are never enough hours in the day. Right. It's uh, <laughs> it's not something that is is tough to manage. So we're really lucky. Although sometimes the business, the you know, the business side when it comes mm-hmm. to like updating the website and you know doing the taxes and things like that, that's the only part where we're like, okay, that's we got to figure out. We got to make the time, find the time. But right. uh, otherwise, it's really really not the bad. Yeah. And did you, did you take a step back from your teaching from, you know, teaching in public schools when, right when you started the program or kind of how did that, how did you work that? Well, I, we started it while I was on maternity leave, Uh, you know, we started discussing it when I was pregnant with the second, with my second kiddo. Mm -hmm. And um, while on maternity leave, he was born with some serious health issues. Mm -hmm. And I ended up staying home for the first year and a half, a little longer than I had anticipated in order to manage his medical needs. Yeah, And I'm way too busy and chaotic in my own brain to just to not have something else going. And so (laughs) that's, that's how this, this program came about. Mm -hmm. Um, I ended up going back into the classroom part time. Um, Mm -hmm. I was a resource specialist. So I was able to work, you know, two, three days a week, and then also scale that back just enough so I could do both well, Mm -hmm. and still be present for the kiddos. And I was working, you know, I've worked part-time in the school district off and on since then, up until March of 2020 when when we went on lockdown and that's and since then I've been primarily focused on homeschooling, which mm-hmm. is still teaching, but it's uh it's just yeah. a, a new a new chapter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that that story brings up for me just this thought about maternity leave. And there's been a little sort of discussion right now on um, artist parent academic. I don't know if you follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Laura, Lauren Francis Evans just had her second baby and was just talking about how, you know, mater- how do I set my like out of office you know, note saying I'm not here because I'm on maternity leave, but that's not a vacation. That's not like, you know, (laughs) and especially, I mean, in your case, you're not only with a newborn and it sounds like at the time, a (laughs) four-year-old, you're helping handle these medical issues that must have included a range of emotions and just, yeah, like it's not, it's, I feel like when people hear, you know, oh, I had a year and a half off, like, no, it wasn't. A, no, that's not what it was. No, <laughs> no. It, yeah, that's it. I love that. I love that you brought that, this up because it's mm-hmm. something I think about in my art practice a lot too, is, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the forms of invisible labor you yeah. know, that we, that we as women, I mean, men too, it's, you know, there are a lot mm-hmm. of things that just aren't acknowledged that, yeah, that year and a half, oof, <laughs> it was, it was not easy. It really wasn't. And then, you know, when you have, anytime you have a child that has significant medical or, I mean, any sort of significant need, mm-hmm. even just like just a typical child parenting is hard to begin with. But yeah. 
it was it was pretty next level in terms of mm. stress and making sure that we were managing that while also being present for our four year old. So it, right. it, that was a that it, it's all a blur. <sighs> like, yeah, I can only imagine. I have just one five year old, and that feels like a lot already. <laughs> yeah those were the 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 younger years of the really like physical labor and Mm -hmm. now that mine are mine are older now we're in the emotional labor Uh, (laughs) yeah I feel like I'm at the point where it's a bit of both (laughs) it's like uh helping helping navigate like friendships and just how to learning how to be a social human while also still like occasionally wiping butts. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. But then also you have, I mean, you have the added layer of trying to navigate all of these really crucial life skills in the midst of a global pandemic. Right. I mean, it's, I really feel for these younger kids who are missing these important social, you know, the social interactions that are so skill building. Yeah. Yeah. And then that makes me think, how can we as educators who are also parents and like, we get it, how can we as educators help with that? I'm not sure it's a a question we can easily answer, but yeah, putting that out there. I agree. Yeah. It's, I think it's the question for our, for our time. And it's, Mm. I, I'm curious to see what the long-term implications will be on, you know, kids at their various ages, you know, Mm -hmm. I see so many things happening with, you know, like my, my 10 year old isn't like my 14 year old can interact with his friends on social media or they, they Minecraft, Mm -hmm. but the younger ones, they don't have this, the same opportunities. So it's, it'll be really interesting to see how we come out of this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My five-year-old recently figured out how to use FaceTime (laughs) <laughs> so she had none of the she didn't have a tablet or anything before the pandemic and you know we had to get her an iPad to do school. We tried with our laptops for a while but the little like trackpad and it just wasn't working. Right. That touch screen is essential for a 5-year-old. So yeah, now she's she does FaceTime with friends and she's getting some of that and then you know we have like our our neighbor, like the other people that live in our apartment building, there's a few families with kids that we do have in-person interaction with. So that's helpful. That's great. You know, it's yeah. funny, this this leads me to think a little bit about digital art making. Mm-hmm. And as a very, like a traditionalist and a very analog person. Yeah. I've like, I really kind of put, put up a little like mental barrier with my teaching, but Mm. this has really caused thinking in ways, you know, I I find that kids, the older kids, especially that I would have these discussions with my students about, you know, they would, they'd want to use the technology and use the tools and take the shortcuts. And I would Mm. always like dig my heels in and say, no, 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 we need to, you need to learn the foundations. You need Mm -hmm. to have this drawing, this, this, and this, you know, before we can do that. And Mm -hmm. I think this has really created an opportunity to explore how to integrate both successfully, at least for me, that's the case. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, tying in more digital art making. Hey, listeners, I'm jumping in here because I have an ask of you. If you are enjoying the show, I would so appreciate your support. I'm humbled and grateful for all the interest in this show over the past several months and for the messages I've received letting me know that this podcast has resonated with you. It has been so inspiring to hear from you. Thank you. This podcast does take time, effort, and resources to share with you every week. And I want to, I plan to, keep it going and stay focused on highlighting and inspiring artists who teach while also continuing to grow this community and dreaming up additional ways to help you. One way to accomplish this is through direct listener support. Your support would really help the show and community grow. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take less than 60 seconds. It's at anchor.fm slash teaching artist podcast slash support. You can contribute one, five or $10 per month. If Teaching Artist Podcast is a part of your week and you love what we're doing, please consider visiting anchor.fm slash teachingartistpodcast slash support, or just clicking the link in the show notes and supporting us in any way that you can today. You mentioned your own work and like how starting the studio sort of opened up a little bit for you and and started maybe to push you towards making more of your work. Would you want to talk a little bit more about your work and kind of how like your journey there as an artist? Absolutely. You know, my my students were the ones who really pushed me. They're like, Mrs. Marshall, where's your art? What are you doing? And I would just, you know, throughout that entire time post art school to the present, you know, I was making things here and there. It was always there, but it wasn't this really dedicated practice until I think I'd mentioned earlier in around 2016, I just was like, okay, it's time. I need to Mm -hmm. really do this. I really want this. I want to have this be a part of my life. And ever since then, it's been go, 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 go. And I've loved it. I I studied painting and printmaking in school and it's kind of ironic. I did not have, I'm a total perfectionist, especially with school and my intermediate painting class back in uh, art school was a real challenge and I wasn't Mm. used to not being quote unquote good at things. And so you know, it looked like I might be getting a B or a C. I dropped the class uh. and switched to printmaking. <laughs> and it's just, and now what do I do primarily? Oh, I paint. So, <laughs> so what I've, you know, I started painting and immediately knew that I need to, needed to learn more and build that skill and have been, you know, educating myself and exploring and doing as much as I possibly can. And then more recently, I decided to finally 
pursue the dream I had as a younger person and go and get my MFA. And so mm. I'm in my, I just finished my first, my first year of a two and a half year program at Pacific Northwest College of Art for an MFA in visual studies. And that's opened a ton of doors creatively for me because I was primarily painting. Now I'm if you look at like my Instagram or something like that, it looks a little chaotic. There's sculpture, <laughs> there's video, there's all kinds of stuff happening. And I'm getting a lot more into conceptual art. So mm-hmm. that's, that's where I am now. And uh, it's, it's really exciting. Yeah, that is so exciting. And I feel like grad school does that like it, at least for me, it definitely pushed me to be more conceptual, almost to a fault. Like I th- feel like it, it took me a little bit of time afterwards to kind of pull pull back some of the freedom that I had before that. Like I was almost too much in my head. Do you feel that at all with, with the program? Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's sometimes it's crippling because you're trying to figure out the visual language for all of it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's really great because I've really figured out what it is that I want to say with my work, Yeah, but executing it successfully and with like a common through line through all of these different mediums, it's a challenge. I mean, it's exciting and I'm really lucky to be able to do it. But man, some days I just, I feel like I'm like beating my head against a wall trying to figure it all out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. (laughs) And then to be doing that, like alongside still running a studio, parenting, homeschooling, it's a lot to, to manage. It is, it is, but it's a really interesting time. Like Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting time to make art. Mm-hmm. And I feel in a lot of ways that I'm really lucky to be able to do this program right now in this moment because of what's happening around us. Yeah. I mean, when I think about art history and, you know, all of the work that came out of like times of hardship, I'm like, you know mm-hmm. what? It's 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 good. It is a lot. I'm um not the most mentally organized person, but a really like aggressively like motivated person. So mm. I I don't have a too much of a problem getting the work done. Maybe keeping it organized, yes, but you know, <laughs> getting everything done for everyone. Um I it's I do a lot better when I'm busy. So mm-hmm. it's been a, a nice, I think a nice distraction too amidst all of the chaos that has been 2020 and 2021. Yeah. And then would you also want to talk a little bit more, just like take us into the concepts and the ideas behind your work? What are you grappling with? (laughs) So I I mentioned before, Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot about like gendered invisible labor and, you know, my, my mother, she was this like angry, repressed, I mean, not angry, but, you know, repressed feminist who, you know, a lot of opportunities passed her by because of her age and gender. And I didn't Mm -hmm. really understand when I was a child, a lot of the things that she was frustrated about now. And unfortunately she, oh, she was also a teacher. Mm -hmm. She passed away when I was a young 
a young woman and from cancer. And that Mm. was a really hard thing to go through, but it's a really good source for me to think about the lives of women, women's bodies, women's health, and access to care and what it means to be a caregiver. You know, I'm working on how to bring that forward in my work. So, you know, I'm still painting a lot, but my paintings are more like assemblage now where I'm mm-hmm. layering lots of lots of textiles and papers and things into them that have different meanings. You know, I'll use gauze and lace and things like that. And then mm-hmm. I just recently had my first foray into video and performance, which was Mm -hmm. a little uncomfortable, but also really exciting. And so I started this inquiry into um, lace and its history and how it's used in women's bodies and like as an adornment and how it's shifted and what has gone into the manufacturing of it. And um, I made a little video and I'm really excited that the video is actually going to be shown at a Um, an exhibition down on the San Diego Tijuana border in a show called Domestic Geographies. So Mm. that's very exciting. Yeah, that's amazing. And I was just looking at your series called Lace. Mm -hmm. Are you including video there as well? Sort of like performance video? Yes, yes. So I, you know, I've started doing these these soft sculptures where I'm like, okay, what do I want to do? And it's the my idea, the concept behind it was to have this lace over a body and it sort of like mm. leaves a ghost image. And it's not really very descript and it's a little ambiguous, but um it kind of like gives gives the viewer something to think about and wonder about without mm. leading them too much into, you know, what it is. And Mm -hmm. in creating these sculptures, I started with like fabric mediums and resin and things. And what I landed on, which is pretty cool, is salt, using salt as the Mm. form of hardening the sculptures. And I make an Epsom salt solution and then use and then I will lay the lace over my body to figure out the form. And then I made um, a packing tape cast of my body Ah. to create a mold or a a form to then soak the lace in the solution and lay it over so then it hardens kind of to a crisp and it creates Mm -hmm. this ephemeral sculpture and in doing that and then like laying it over my own body I started thinking about you know like that that concept of like the invisible labor Mm -hmm. and I thought you know what I'm going to make a video of this and with some help from my studio assistants, my family, (laughs) we we were able to set up different cameras and angles. And that's, that's how Mm. I entered into that, uh, the video making, which is nothing I ever thought I would do. But it's, it's exciting to experiment and try some new things. Yeah. And I feel like there's certain ideas, certain concepts that just kind of ask you to be a video. (laughs) If that makes sense. Yes, for sure. And and the beauty about making something as an art piece, as opposed to something that's, you know, like commercial is you don't Mm. necessarily have to be like highly technically proficient Mm -hmm. in, in that 
skill. You can, I mean, there's, we're so lucky that right now I can go in and watch some YouTube videos and have my 14 year old tutor me in the technology <laughs> <laughs> and, and kind of figure, you know, figure it out on a, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, not necessarily the highest quality, but you know, I, I'm figuring it out and it's really great that we can do that right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like, especially when, when it is more conceptual, when the concept leads the, you know, you can be more experimental with your materials and kind of be figuring out how, like, how technically do I make this work and, and get this idea out. For sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. And like you said, when the concept leads, if you have a great concept, then kind of the the other pieces fall into place. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like these lace pieces are so beautiful and moving just speaks to like you were talking about the visibility and invisibility and even, you know, touches on like loss and the absence of the body there. Oh, thank you. Yes. I, I, that, all right. Well, (laughs) you know, with with everything happening and, you know, the pandemic and, you know, like being Mm -hmm. like isolated, it's, it's nice to know that those concepts are coming through. Uh, Cause you know, sometimes it feels like, you know, we make this work and it's some, something of a vacuum, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, that that's, that's great. I, I really appreciate that you can see that in them because it's, you know, it, working conceptually, it's not always easy, like figuring out how to get that message across. Yeah, totally. I'm also liking how in your, like the work that's sort of more painterly, it's interesting to see where, you know, bits of thread and lace come in and how it does all kind of tie together. It's, um, it's kind of a good, a good story. When this when I was trying to get the the studio space in my home ready converted into a studio space slash homeschool classroom, I had to pare down my materials and really get things organized. And I found this spool of lace in our you know our studio supplies, and I really really liked that spool of lace. And I'm like, how can I bring this into the work? And so, you know, like the, one of the first things I did is I'm like, I'm going to slap this on a painting. And then it just grew from there. And next thing you know, I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not just painting. Maybe I'm painting with the fabric. And then the fabric like moved off the canvas and onto, onto the ground. So it's, it's kind of that through line that I've found pretty organically just after the discovery of this one spool of lace and my teaching materials, which for me feels feels pretty cool and like it's all you know meant to be yeah amazing and th- through the MFA program right now i'm guessing like your ho- your studio is at your home would would you normally have a like studio at school if it wasn't if we weren't in this pandemic Yes. Well, so I'm in a, a low residency program, okay. which is really great. So, you know, I get yeah. to go go up in the summers and do the two months up in Portland and mm-hmm. use the beautiful studios and facilities there at my school. And then, you know, work doing independent study with um, artist mentors mm-hmm. in the, you know, the quote unquote school year. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty neat program, and it's great to have that flexibility, um, you know, because we do, you know, as a you know, 
not fresh out of undergrad. I have mm-hmm. kids and work and all the things. So it's, right. it's nice to be able to pursue that without giving up all of the other things that I, you know, can't leave behind. Yeah. And do you feel like most of the other students are also, they've already kind of established their lives? Is it similar because it's that low res program? Yes, indeed. And I love it. My cohort, um, most of my cohort mates are teachers. And amazing. It it really is because I mean, as you know, teachers are teachers are pretty good. Like we're Mm -hmm. we're good people. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's just it's lovely. They're wonderful and you know, we're all we're all struggling with the same things while trying to make our work and, you know, be there for our families, students, et cetera. So mm-hmm. it's, it's nice to have that, that group of people, that, that commonality that we share. Yeah. That's such a, a good connection right now too. Definitely. And I just was looking at looking more at your website and um, seeing the pieces that maybe aren't as related to your other work, but the series you did of your sister-in-law. Oh yes. Yeah. That are so moving just to see you know, all of the gear. Maybe before I talk about it, do you want to talk a little bit about that work? Oh, sure. That, so this is, this has turned into like a much bigger project than I could have anticipated. So my sister is a physician back in New York City and Mm -hmm. her partner is also a, a doctor there as well. And in March, April, when they they were really in it back there, as we all remember, Mm. I just, it was so hard. Like they couldn't even answer the phone. They were working like hundred hour work weeks and Mm. it just, the fear, I mean, we were going through our garage looking for N95 masks, which I happen to have some for like painting and things like that. You know, if I use spray paint and we were like, shipping them back there and trying to, you know, collecting things for them. It was just, it was really scary. And my sister-in-law as an ICU doctor, her experience was just so profound and honestly Mm -hmm. traumatic. And Mm -hmm. one day she sent me a selfie and I was like, okay, I need more of that. Send Mm -hmm. me more. Can I paint you? And she was like, sure. And so I Mm -hmm. painted, I didn't have any canvas. It was, you know, April, we weren't going to stores or anything yet. And so I slapped some paper down on my tables and I just whipped together these sketches, you know, they were like Mm. painterly sketches of her. And yeah, and they, I mean, they were done quickly. I didn't, you know, sit and, and they were also done in acrylic. So it's not, you know, like a perfect figurative rendering. I think they captured the urgency of Mm -hmm. what they were experiencing and um, what it meant to be doing the work that they were doing at that time. And then something really cool happened. My, I did the critique groups with the Artist Mother Network and mm-hmm. met one of your previous guests, Katie Bradford Osborne. Oh, yes. Who, uh, love her. And she, you know, my critique group saw that work and were like, Kelly, you need to explore that those are really powerful. They're really mm-hmm. contemporary. You need, and it's not finished. What else can you do? And Katie connected me with a doctor who runs an organization called Physician Moms Group. Mm-hmm. And her network 
is has about 7,500 doctor moms around the world. Mm. And we decided to collaborate and do a bit like a large scale portrait project um, to Mm. create a visual history of what these women are experiencing right now as doctors Mm. and mothers during a pandemic. So that's, and I, the goal is to, I've got 90 plus 95 submissions. I'm going to attempt to paint them all. Wow. And we're going to collect their stories, their narratives, and hopefully Mm. publish an art book of the portraits and the stories. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that will be beautiful. And so just emotional. Definitely. But, you know, sometimes we've, like, I've felt pretty helpless, you know, Mm -hmm. during, during this pandemic. And it's been a really great way to feel like I'm doing something positive and, Mm -hmm. you know, giving, giving a service of sorts to these women who are doing this, this work while, you know, being, you know, having the added layer of, you know, worrying about their own families and, you know, the Mm -hmm. work that has been required of, you know, parents Mm -hmm. during this time. So it's, it's a real privilege to be able to work with their, with their stories and try and attempt this. And also it's been a real test of my painting abilities (laughs) now that I've, I've outed myself as a painting major dropout. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I feel like the quality of them, like the, you know, you talked about them almost as like painted sketches, like that they're, they're looser and especially how like the backgrounds as well are kind of looser. Mm-hmm. That that, like you said, speaks to sort of the urgency, and I almost see it as like this sort of all these things swirling around these women as they're just trying to get through, and telling their stories is so powerful. I I really hope so, and mm-hmm. I've had people question, you know, well, why are you why are you using selfies? Why are you painting them in the gear, mm-hmm. and you know, when I think about care and their experiences, I also think about what it means to have, you know, as a doctor, as someone who is providing that, you know, that really intimate level of care in someone's, I mean, in some cases, people's last moments of their lives. Mm. And then, and yet they're like, they're given this barrier, like on their physical self and Mm -hmm. you know all you can see is their eyes are their eyes and that Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a really powerful thing to try and capture and even just like the pain like it in some cases the pain of wearing you know an N95 over a surgical mask or you know like in the goggles with then face shield and it's just it's a lot and it's I think it's a a great challenge to try and you know show the humanity of the situation Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen, you know, photos of doctors sharing photos of their faces when they take it all off and just the, you know, the marks that all of the gear leave behind and the sores that it leaves. And, yeah. Oh. yeah, it's really, it's really incredible. And, you know, I when I 
first started receiving the submissions, I would, you know, I'd open my computer and I'd check and I'd look at the pictures and then I'd read the the narratives that they would submit. And Mm. I mean, even now I end up in tears just thinking about their experiences because it's just like the sacrifices that Mm -hmm. they've made. I mean, you have women that are sleeping in the garage because they can't be around their children or women who have infants that can't hold their babies or, you know, like having to, you know, be with, be with someone when they're, you know, as they are dying, as they're, maybe their family, you know, holding a phone up to a dying, you know, human being because their family can't physically be present. It's just the weight of it is so much. Yeah. Uh, And I feel like as a mother, that's hard, you know, that that adds another level to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it's, I mean, I, a friend was like, well, what about the dads? I'm like, I care about them too. And yes. I care about everyone <laughs> in this situation and the ones who don't have parents. But considering the things that I think about in my art practice, mm-hmm. the, the doctor, the physician, moms, it just made so much sense. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, I would like to maybe hear more about your I don't know what to call it, the business side or kind of the nitty gritty details of your art practice. We talked a bit about that with the studio that you run, but maybe if you could share how you're, you know, showing your work or attempting to show and sell all of that (laughs) sort of stuff. (laughs) You know, that's, it's a really good question. And I feel like as an emerging artist and someone who hasn't been doing it for very long, I've had a real evolution. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, when I started um, a few years ago, I was so motivated on selling, you know, if I'm not selling, then I'm not valuable and mm-hmm. my work isn't valuable. And mm-hmm. I've really taken a step away from that for the better, thank goodness. And by making work that is really about the things that I care about and my experiences, I have the freedom of not feeling that, you know, I mean, it's, it's not easy to sell work as an artist. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, um, there are a lot of us and not a huge market unless you're like, you know, one of the blue chips or something like that. But Mm -hmm. I found that when I started making work that is coming from my heart and I'm having a lot more success with selling. And I do that Mm -hmm. through, I used to have a studio and now I just am on a wall at a like a gallery studio space in mm-hmm. in San Diego. And then I also get a lot generate a lot of sales through word of mouth and friends and then through mm-hmm. Instagram. But the way I show it, it's so much of it is relationship based and mm-hmm. that was a really interesting revelation. You know, I would do that when I first, again, first started out a few years ago, I do all the open calls and, you know, they cost money. It's not easy to, right. you know, just, and it takes a lot of work. You know, you've got a format for every single call, you know, they have a different mm-hmm. set of parameters that they want you to fall through and it just takes hours. Well, I started being really critical on which shows and which galleries really fit Mm-hmm. my content, my aesthetic, et cetera. And then have just a couple of galleries that I've developed relationships with. And so I've been able to show there's a gallery in Hermosa Beach that I show with pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. And 
also one in Laguna Beach. And then I do the shows at the studio where I rent my wall space. Mm-hmm. So that's been great. And then, you know, every once in a while, if it's, a, you know, like a national juried exhibition, I'll apply, but I try to be pretty selective just because of, you know, time and financial resources. And, you know, it's a, usually a long shot and I'm okay with that. But every <laughs> once in a while, you know, somebody, you know, someone says yes, and that's just the best feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally feel you on that, that juggling which open calls are, are, you know, the right fit, which ones to apply to. And I love hearing that building those relationships with galleries. I feel like it's, it can feel sort of daunting and challenging to like get your foot in the door. How did you, yeah. How did you start those relationships with the the galleries that you work with? It wasn't always very linear. Uh, The, the Hermosa Beach Gallery, it's called Shockbox Project and they're, they're lovely. They're just a really wonderful organization. Mm -hmm. I started submitting to calls, got rejected mm-hmm. from the first couple, but mm-hmm. I knew I really liked their aesthetic and the mm-hmm. artists who were, um, you know, their represented artists. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just kept applying and they do really, really fun open calls, thematic mm-hmm. open calls and that are lend themselves pretty well to my abstract work as well as um, they have kind of a pop art feel too. Mm-hmm. And I got got a painting in and then made sure that, you know, it's important. You send that thank you email and Mm -hmm. you follow up and um, just, and, and do it, you know, from a place of authenticity, you know, let them know how much it means to you, but not overly, you know, syrupy, but you know, just do, do that little bit of extra work. And then Mm -hmm. the next open call, they remember your name. Or, you know, it, and once you've, and then they've seen your work and then it builds from there and, you know, you send them, send them the thank yous. It, it matters. And then that's been how I've done it. I'm not a very outgoing person. I'm not a person <laughs> who really enjoys going to gallery openings or things like that. I can be pretty awkward in those big situations. So this has been a way around that for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you on that. The <laughs> uh I it was hard for me before the pandemic to get to openings. You know, parenting gets in the way, teaching gets in the way. But then even right. when I do get there, I'm totally the same, like just this <laughs> awkward person. <laughs> I right. I can't just like go up and start selling selling myself as an mm-hmm. artist and like have those conversations that don't feel really forced. And mm-hmm. I've got to get over it, and I will. But yeah. uh, it's it's rough. And also in San Diego, you know, I, it's we're not as not as big, not as active as um, L.A. and New York. Mm-hmm. So that's an added barrier and getting up to LA, you know, it's two hours, but it could easily be five if you hit, if you don't time right. it right. <laughs> oh, okay. So a couple of just fun questions. One really broad. What are you curious about right now? Oh, I'm as a person who cares very deeply about humanity. I am curious to see how we'll come out of this time mm-hmm. as a society, as a community. I really 
want and hope that we will be better, do better, care more, mm-hmm. all of those things. So I'm, I'm anxious and excited to see and hopeful that mm-hmm. the future may just be a little bit better. Yes. Holding on to that hope. Okay. Fun, fun question. What is your favorite food? <laughs> it's a it's a guilty pleasure and um and this is my you know San Diego roots. I love a really good vegetarian burrito and there's mm. our local taco shop that we've been going to for you know I think since high school. Mm. And uh is it's it's not too far from where my family lives now and oh yes, a good veggie burrito you can't beat it. Mm. Yeah. And especially there in San Diego. Yeah. And then is there anyone that you would want to thank or give a shout out to? Oh, sure. Um, I love my artist mother crit groups. They're Mm -hmm. amazing. And I've had some really great mentors. Um, I'm working with just a really beautiful human being named Joyelle McSweeney right now. She's a poet. She's my mentor. And then I've also worked with Erin McCluskey Wheeler, who's a collage artist out of the Bay Area. And she's just been a godsend to me um, in terms of my art practice and helping me mm-hmm. get into grad school. And um, uh. and of course, my family who are just lovely and so supportive and my grad school cohorts. And to you for giving me this opportunity. This uh. has been so nice. Yeah, absolutely. It's been so great to hear about your artwork and your teaching and all of the experience you have. I feel like it's really helpful just to hear the business side of all of the, you know, the studio that you run, but also what you're doing and your like long experience in special education um, and how that how you bring that in to art making and to the studio. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I really love it. I really do. And I hope that comes through. Yeah, I think it does. Last thing, where can listeners connect with you online? So my, I think with my art practice, it's probably mostly Instagram. And that's Mm -hmm. Kelly underscore Marshall underscore find underscore art. (laughs) It's a little Uh lengthy. Yeah, but I'll link there too. (laughs) <laughs> and then um, Kelly Marshall Fine Art is my website. And mm-hmm. then um, I have more information about my teaching studio on Facebook. And it, mm-hmm. it's just Color Construct Create Studio. Awesome. Yeah. So I'll link to all of that in the show notes. You can go check it out. And thank you so much, Kelly. This was great. Oh, thank you. This really is a, a special podcast that you have. I really love it. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.